Good morning. I am Dan Leeper, one of the pastors here. If you are newer to the church, you'll notice that we're using a, a preaching team on Sundays, so there's rotation of different preachers. Last week, one of our non-staff elders, Joe Jones, began this series in the book of Acts uh, we're calling the Unstoppable Gospel. Uh, next week, David Sunday, who's now um, voluntary teaching pastor here, uh, he's going to be preaching in Acts 2, and so today we'll be uh, in Acts 1 again. I read an article this week in the Washington Post that was published a couple days ago. It was titled, Russia's War on Ukraine has some Christians wondering, is this the end of the world? Uh, and I read a couple other similar articles. Maybe you have seen some things like this. Maybe you've been wondering some things like this. A couple weeks ago, Pat Robertson, who we haven't heard from for a while, he's been retired, but he came out of retirement on the 700 Club televangelist and made this claim that uh, Putin is currently being compelled by God to attack Ukraine and that it won't stop at Ukraine. He's going to continue marching through to Israel and that this will usher in the end times and the battle of Armageddon. And so the end is here. And it's possible that you may roll your eyes at Pat Robertson, who has multiple times uh, throughout his um, work been proven to be a false prophet, uh, claiming in 1976 that the world would end in 1982. Uh, and there, but it's not just Pat Robbins, Robertson. There are many other Christians as well throughout history, uh, and especially in the last hundred years or so, this has increased. Where uh, there's a desire to look at current events that are happening and to try to see them as literal fulfillments of biblical prophecy. And when those prophecies prove to be untrue, then there's a recalculation of the dates, uh, and we try, try again. Um, but even with this very poor track record, uh, Christians still have this tendency to want to look at the news, uh, whether it's newspaper or now in an app, uh, and to see these events and to try to figure out the code and figure out which of these are literally happening right now. And that question that keeps coming up is, is this the end? Is, is this it? Is Jesus about to come back? Is this what we, we see? And I, I remember growing up and we're hearing all these different things like, the red heifer is born, and there are no spots on it, and so it must be within three years, or you know, it's just these different calculations that you hear. And in, in Acts 1, the disciples are asking a similar question. It's worded a little bit differently, but they ask this question, Jesus, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? And so that's in verse 6, and I want that to be kind of a framework for us thinking about this message. What we're going to see is that the ascended king is restoring his kingdom. Uh, that'll be the title of the sermon today, and we'll see how this fleshes out in the whole chapter. The ascended king is restoring his kingdom, and we'll, we'll ask three different questions as we read this chapter. One, how is the kingdom being restored? 
Number two, who is the king? And number three, how do we respond to this king? So first, I'm going to read this whole chapter. So let's turn to the book of Acts. If you're using the Bible in the chair in front of you, it's page 966, Acts chapter 1. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God. That's going to be important for us to think through, what he's speaking to them about. Verse 4, While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which, he said, you've heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? And he said to them, It's not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. After he'd said this, he was taken up as they were watching. A cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven. Suddenly, two men in white clothes stood by them, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus, who's been taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. And they returned to, Jer to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they arrived, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. They were all continually united in prayer, along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers and sisters. A number of people who were together were about 120, and he said, Brothers and sisters, it was necessary that the scripture be fulfilled, that the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of David, foretold about Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was one of our number and shared in this ministry. Now, this man acquired a field with his unrighteous wages. He fell headfirst, his body burst open, his intestines spilled out. This became known to all the residents of Jerusalem so that in their own language that field is called Hakaldama, that is field of blood. For it's written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place become desolate. Let no one live in it and let someone else take his position. Therefore, from among the men who have accompanied us during the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, from among these, it's necessary that one become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two. Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also known as Justice, and Matthias, 
Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's hearts. Show which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this apostolic ministry that Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. So remember, we're asking three questions. How is the kingdom being restored? Who is the king? And how do we as his people respond to this king? So let's start with that first question. How is the kingdom being restored? And we might have to argue, I'm going to argue a little bit, that that is what's being talked about here in Acts 1. Uh, Remember the context here of the question. Think about this. Why did they ask Jesus this question? What prompted them to say, Jesus, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? Uh, Part of that context is that over the past 40 days, Jesus had appeared to them, many convincing proofs, and he was speaking to them. He was instructing them about what? About the kingdom of God. So this had already been a significant portion of their training, of Jesus' instruction to them. At the end of Luke, it tells us that Jesus is telling them how the scriptures are fulfilled and all pointing to himself, all pointing to Christ. And so they have this background, but there's more than that. The, The very thing that happened right before they asked this question is that Jesus tells them that the promise from the Father, which is the Holy Spirit, is about to come on them in a few days. To us, that might seem unrelated, but it would not have seemed unrelated to them. It's this, it's this promise that triggers in their mind the question, okay, so is this the restoration of the kingdom? There, there are a few different places that we could go in the Old Testament that they, they might have had in their mind, but I'm going to just take us to one. It's Ezekiel 36 and 37. Ezekiel 36 and 37, there are these promises about the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. And what I want us to notice is that there is a, um, there's a connection between when the Holy Spirit comes, when the Holy Spirit is poured out, and the, the gathering, the restoration of Israel. And I will just say this as a side before we look at these. I was really helped by a book. Uh, the preaching team has this book. It's, it's by Alan Thompson. It's called The Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus. Uh, and I'd highly recommend it to you. If you want uh, a book that's going to kind of parallel some of the themes that we're preaching about together, studying together as a church in Acts, uh, Alan Thompson's books, The Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus, are really helpful. And a lot of this material uh, was shaped, and I was helped by it as, as prepared for this. Um, so Ezekiel 36, God says, I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the countries, and I will bring you into your own land. So there's this, this restoration language there. Verse 27, a few verses later, he says, I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes, and carefully observe my ordinances. The next chapter, Ezekiel 37, he says, I will put my spirit in you, and you will live, and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it. Seven verses later, in verse 21, he says, Tell them, this is what the Lord God says. 
I'm going to take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel. And one king will rule over all of them. No longer be two nations. They will no longer be divided into two kingdoms. So there is restoration. This is, this is the promise of the restoration of Israel. And it's linked to when the Spirit comes. And so this is why. This, they would have known their Old Testament, known these promises. This was the hope of Israel and known that it was closely linked to the coming of the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus says the, this promise from the Father, the Holy Spirit is going to come on you. You will be baptized. Just John baptized you with water. I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. They say, okay, so this must be it. This is the time. And so they ask Jesus, is now the time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? So this is helpful for us in, in just understanding why they asked that question. But then let's look at how Jesus responds. Jesus says to them, it's not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. So that's not Jesus saying, you dumb disciples, you're still caught up with this kingdom. No, this is, this, Jesus has already been talking to them about the kingdom. What he, what he is correcting is this need for them to know the times. And so he, he says to them, it's not for you to know times and periods, how all this, the, the timing of how all this is going to be fulfilled. And so that, that statement gets over-applied sometimes when we think, okay, so Jesus is just saying, hey, don't worry about it. That'll, that'll come later. That'll come in a couple thousand years. But that's, that's actually not, because the very next sentence, Jesus continues to talk about this kingdom. Uh, and I didn't see this until preparing for Acts. I don't think. If I did, I forgot it. Uh, but seeing, seeing this language that Jesus used is so closely linked to these Old Testament prophe prophecies of restoration. So what does Jesus say next? I'm going to put the three phrases on the screen that Jesus uses and where each of these come from in the book of Isaiah. So each of these passages, if you look them up, you can write them down, look them up. In your Bible, likely you're going to see some heading of the section that they're in. It's talking about the restoration of the kingdom of Israel, the, the new kingdom. And it says in Isaiah 32, uh, 15, until the spirit from on high is poured out on us. So the context of that is the righteous kingdom being announced. The context of Isaiah 43, 12 is the restoration of Israel. And, and it says, I am Yahweh. Besides me, there is no savior. I alone declared, saved, proclaimed, not some foreign God among you. And here's what it says. So you are my witnesses. This is the Lord's declaration. I am God. And then another restoration passage, Isaiah 49 where it says, it's not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob, restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Okay, so 
Jesus says, it's not for you to know times, periods. Uh, that's, that's the authority of the Father. But you are about to receive power. And then he pulls these Old Testament restoration of Israel themes and allusions up where he says, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Um, and again, they would have been excited. This kingdom is coming. So Jesus here is explaining to them how that kingdom is going to be restored and what their role in that process is going to be. One other thing, though, uh, we have these three phrases, but when it says, you will be my witnesses, the geography that Jesus uses is, is not just a con concentric circles, uh, a good model for us of thinking, you know, evangelize people close to you first and then, you know, maybe go a little further out and then also think about uh, the whole world. No, there, there's, there are specific links to the geography that Jesus gives that, again, show this kingdom has begun uh, because he says, remember the, the Ezekiel passage that we already looked at? He said he was going to gather all of the scattered Jews back to the nation. Uh, and then he says, and the two kingdoms are going to become one. Uh, so what Jesus says here is, you will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem. And we're going to see that being fulfilled, in, especially in chapters 1 through 6 or 7 of Acts, uh, where Jerusalem is the focus. And next week's sermon, we're going to see those scattered Jews return to Jerusalem and be brought into this kingdom, transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the sun. And, and, and then he says, in Judea and Samaria... So Judea is this language that, that describes where the southern kingdom is. Samaria is essentially the same region where the northern kingdom was. Uh, and so he's, he's showing that Jesus again is going to be king over these, these two. They're going to be brought into one people. So gathered into Jerusalem. Uh, then the, the gospel, the kingdom expands into Judea and Samaria uh, and we see that fulfilled out in Acts, especially chapters 8 through 12, where the gospel is, is expanding out into these regions. And then he says, and also to the ends of the earth. Uh, and we see that in Acts, especially in, in chapters 13 through 28, where the gospel goes to the Gentiles and then, and then to the ends of the earth, to, to Rome. And, and then as Joe talked about last week, that gospel is still expanding. It's, it's still going to the ends of the earth. And there are still unreached people groups who need to hear, need to be transferred. This is Paul's language in Colossians from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the sun. One other thing, though, that helps us see this is why, why this section about needing to replace the 12th apostle. Uh, again, helpful for us to think about the, Jesus choosing 12 apostles uh, in this symbolic way, linking back to his people, which were the 12 tribes of Israel. And now there is this uh, eschatological Israel, this, this new Israel, new people of God, where the Jews and Gentiles are now grafted together into this one people of God where uh, Jesus is the, the, the last Adam and the new Israel and all are brought into the inheritance in him. Uh, so this, 
this needed to be restored. So there's another image here of restoring Israel, the foundation of this kingdom that's going to expand. Uh, in, in, before Jesus died, in Matthew 19, he said to his uh, disciples, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, if you jump ahead, uh, they don't know this yet, but later John's going to write Revelation. Uh, and it says, The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And this, this sounds similar to what Paul describes as the apostles being the foundation in Ephesians 2, uh, where he's describing how God took these two peoples, Israel and the Gentiles, and he destroyed that wall of hostility and brought them together into one new humanity. And it says that they are fellow citizens, fellow heirs. So that, that's talking about these, these heirs or receivers of the inheritance of these promises. Fellow members of the same household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Uh, so this What's the authority? What's the, what's the, what are these thrones of the apostles? They, they are, there is an apostolic authority, a foundation for this kingdom, this, this gospel that's going to go out into the world, that's going to spread. So all of this language in Acts 1 is pointing to how Jesus is going to restore the kingdom to Israel. So what do we think about this? Well, we, we can see the restoration of the kingdom of Israel begins at Pentecost. Kingdom is God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And, and the inauguration of this restoration of the kingdom, of the, the fulfillment of these prophecies happens when the ascended king sits on his throne, pours out his spirit, gathers people in, unites the tribes, uh, and then scatters out into the ends of the earth. His kingdom has begun. And so you'll hear language like it's inaugurated. It has, it has begun. But it's an already and a not yet. Many of, these, many of these promises are already fulfilled, but not yet completely fulfilled. So the promises to Israel, including the land promise, find their ultimate fulfillment in Christ. So it's not, not exactly right to, to say the church has replaced Israel. No, actually, Christ is the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament Promises, all these Old Testament types and covenants. And so God made covenant with Adam and creates Adam in his image to be his representative into the world. Well, Adam fails and uh, God makes this covenant with Noah and God makes covenant with Abraham. God makes covenant with Moses and Israel and then with David and all of these covenants, all, all of them fail until there is a new covenant. And it is Christ who is the only one 
who could fully fulfill all of the requirements of the covenant. And that's why he's called the last Adam. It's why he's called the new Israel, because that's why he tells his, his followers, his disciples at the end of Luke, that all of, these, all of these scriptures were pointing to me. And so, no, the church doesn't just replace Israel. The, the church, which is made up of Jew and Gentile, and much of the New Testament is about that. The church who's, who's made up of Jew and Gentile now receives the benefits of all of these promised blessings because of our union with Christ. Because he is the one. He is the one that we're united to. So when you read, restore the kingdom to Israel, we see here from this, from this chapter and others, we're not primarily thinking about what happened in 1948 when Israel becomes a nation again. We're thinking about much bigger than that, how Jesus describes this kingdom. It's a gathering of a people for himself under his rule, transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the Son. John 18, 36, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. So if we're wondering about, okay, so what about these land promises? Well, remember this kingdom is already, but not yet. There is coming a day when God's people will live in the promised land. We sing that sometimes, I'm bound for the promised land. But let's, let's not think that those boundaries are the same as the old promised land. No, now what the people of God are looking forward to is the promised land where he says, you will inherit the earth. You will inherit the new heavens and the new earth where God's people are living in God's place under God's rule and blessing. So it's, it's not less than what the Old Testament promised. It's much more. Uh, these, these fulfillments are fulfilled in greater ways, maybe, than anyone ever imagined. Okay, so that was a lot, I understand. Um, a lot of passages, a lot of Old Testament, uh, slightly controversial, perhaps, for some of you, and, and, and that's okay. But the rest of this isn't. Uh, and so I, I do think like this, this passage is showing us how Jesus is restoring his kingdom. But even if you're struggling with some of that, these next two portions, we all can agree on unanimously. Who is this king and how do we respond to him? This is where we see the ascension passage. We already know who the king is. I've already said it several times but I want us to see what's unique about Acts 1. What's it tell us about the greatness, the majesty of this King of Kings, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 9 again. It says, after he said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. We, we don't speak as often about the ascension as of the other things, uh, the other works of Jesus Christ. And that's, that is okay, because I think that probably parallels the way, the amount of space given to, in the rest of the Bible, to his uh, life, his death, his resurrection, his return. But the ascension is also really important. And as you start seeing it, seeing how much of New Testament theology is, is rooted in the fact that Jesus is seated on his throne now and he's actively working in this world. And so the ascension helps us uh, a little bit when we think about what's different about Jesus 
than our other dead friends and relatives who are Christians. Um, Jesus is in heaven, they're in heaven, so it can seem kind of odd sometimes when we say Jesus is alive. Well, well, certainly we're helped by the convincing proofs that are already talked about here. So Jesus appeared to them, they saw him, they touched him, he ate with them, and so there were many, many convincing proofs historically that Jesus rose again bodily. This is why even it says that they're, they're one of the reasons they needed this apostle to be someone who was a witness of the resurrection, who saw Jesus in his ministry, uh, who saw him after he was risen from the dead because Christian faith is rooted in the historical reality of Jesus' bodily resurrection. But the ascension shows us where he is now. It helps us think about what happened to him. He's not just hiding. He's not missing. He's, he's not on sabbatical. He is, has ascended to take his place on the throne as the king of the world. And he's now actively at work in his kingdom through his people and through his spirit. But I want us to see two things here. There's a little phrase in verse 9 that says, a cloud took him out of their sight. Um, and then the, the angels say he's going to come again in the same way that he, he left. So this, this little phrase of a cloud took him is, is really interesting of showing just who this Christ is. Now let me put up Mark 14 where we see another time where the clouds are mentioned. This is where Jesus is uh, being interrogated. He's on trial. The high priest questioned him and said, are you the Messiah the son of the blessed one. Jesus says, I am, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And that might not do much for us. Uh, again, because we don't have sometimes all of the, the Old Testament imagery in our minds, but this is the moment where they tear their clothes and said, what other proof do you need? He's claiming to be God. Well, why? Because he says the Son of Man, seated on the throne, coming in the clouds. Well, the Israelite view of the cloud rider, um, every other time in the Old Testament where someone is coming on the clouds or, or riding in the clouds, it's Yahweh. It is, it is God. This is a symbol or a way of describing the power, the majesty, the glory of God, except for one. And it's the one Jesus quotes here in Daniel 7. So in Daniel 7, there's this vision. It says, I continued watching in the night vision. Suddenly, one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. So already, there, there's, there's this strange image here of the, the one coming on the clouds, which is normally God, is now described as a son of man, and he's approaching God. He's approaching the ancient of days. And, and then given to this Son of Man is what? Dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. And so when Jesus says, when, when the angels say, yeah, the cloud took him away and he's coming again on the clouds. Uh, and when Jesus claimed to fulfill this prophecy in Daniel, he is saying, I am the God-man. 
I am the son of God, the son of man, the king of kings, the God of gods. He is the risen and ascended king of this universe. And then just one other thing in this passage. It's, it's what we already looked at when Jesus says, you are my witnesses. You'll be my witnesses. That passage in Isaiah that, where Jesus is alluding to, if you go back to that passage in Isaiah, it's Yahweh it is, it is God the Father, Yahweh, who says, you are my witnesses. And so again, now Jesus claiming these prophecies, these uh, fulfilled, claiming to be fulfillment of Yahweh, saying, you are my witnesses, is again showing his deity, his majesty. He is God. So this king is God, son of man, who's risen, ascended. He is the Christ who's actively ruling his kingdom and will return in the clouds to judge the living and the dead. Now, how do we respond to this king? There's several things here in this chapter that, that show us, okay, when we have this enlarged vision of King Jesus, who's inaugurated, establishing his kingdom, actively ruling. How do we respond to it? The first is what we were just looking at, that you will be my witnesses. I'm going to put all five things up here. So this first one is that we are called to proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, this this statement that you will be my witnesses and witness in acts often is, is this eyewitness to the resurrection. And this, again, is what I was talking about, why they wanted Matthias, who was also an eyewitness, because now they, like in a court sense, are coming and saying, yes, I saw this. They're not just telling about what they believe. They're saying, I saw Jesus risen from the dead. And that's what radically turned the world upside down as that message of the risen and ascended king goes out to the ends of the earth. But yet the New Testament also talks about how all of his people now are witnesses telling this world that there is a king, that they can be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the sun. And so we ask ourselves, who is in our lives right now that needs to hear this message, that needs to know that there is a king who is in control and that there is salvation in his name. Number two, we anticipate his return. This is what we see here in verse 11. The, the angels said, this same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven, he will come in the same way that you've seen him going into heaven. And so we are longing for the full fulfillment of this kingdom. When sin is completely gone, when Jesus is reigning and ruling in its fullest sense, we still long for that day. And we are looking forward for Jesus to come. The, the, the cry of the church throughout the ages has been, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And while we're here, though, we should be a people who are united in prayer. We see this description in, in verse 14 of how they respond. As they wait for the Holy Spirit, in verse 14 it says, they were all continually united in prayer along with the women. If you're in a, 
a, a small group here, a gospel community, one of the things that we're going to do in our small groups is to, to spend an extra amount of time praying this week. Uh, praying for some of these kingdom promises to be fulfilled, for God to, to use us to proclaim his kingdom into in the people around us. As we think about how we're engaging with the world and evangelizing and establishing people uh, in the faith, equipping for, for ministry, praying that God would do that work through us. We should be a people who are united in prayer. And then we trust his sovereign leadership. This is Acts 1, 23, that, that story of how they choose this apostle. Uh, and we're going to see this different times as we go through the book of Acts. Some things are prescriptive, saying like this is what the church should do, and some things are descriptive, more of a unique thing, and it can be difficult to, to try to figure out, are, are we supposed to cast lots? But this is one that is pretty unanimously looked at as uh, not something that the church should continue to make their decisions in this method, but it, but it does show their trust in God's sovereignty. This isn't like Gideon's test of God through his looking for a sign. This was them saying, like back in verse 2 where it says Jesus chose his apostles, that, that, that same theme gets repeated again where it says, you, know, you, Lord, know everyone's hearts. Show us which of these two you have chosen. So they are acknowledging that the Lord is reigning. He is ruling. He is sovereign. And they're wanting to trust him. S similar to just their expression of faith in the promises of God, where it says that it's necessary for Scripture to be fulfilled. It was necessary uh, for Judas to betray. It was necessary to replace him. So the Scriptures are fulfilled. That all, we see that theme all through Acts as well, as well, where it's necessary that God is fulfilling his promises, fulfilling his plan. And they are trusting him. And then one last thing is to follow King Jesus. Because very likely there are some here today who aren't yet. Uh, and I put this passage on the screen that I've already quoted a couple times. Paul says, I'm giving thanks to the Father who's enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He's rescued us from what? From the domain or kingdom of darkness. And he's transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. In him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so I plead with you today to choose the side of King Jesus. We're all born in the kingdom of darkness, living for ourselves, living for God's enemies, uh, living for our own pleasure, thinking that we control our own life. And the way that we are transferred into the kingdom of the Son is by repenting, turning away from all of that and pledging your allegiance to the King of Kings trusting that what he says about himself and what he did are true, that he died for your sins, that he rose again, that he is risen and reigning and ruling. And you say, yes, Jesus, I follow you. And if you do that today, there is forgiveness of all of your sins. He will rescue you and you will be an inheritor then of all of those blessings and promises. Let me pray for us.
Oh God, do this work in us. Holy Spirit, open up our eyes once again to see Jesus Christ, the King of kings. To believe that he is ruling and reigning. That he is at work gathering a people for himself. That Jesus, you will return one day to judge the living and the dead. So God, I pray that we would submit to you as our king, to worship you as our king. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.